Welcome, everybody. Episode 005 of the Core 4 Podcast. We're here, March 13th, 2019. Uh, Very interesting episode we got going for you guys today. Uh, We were joined by our first guest on the Core 4 Podcast. We were joined by Brian Hoke, Yankees beat writer for MLB.com, has been the writer there for 13 seasons. You'll get to hear from him a little later. We're going to cover a slew of things we're going to be talking about Jacoby Ellsbury's you know alleged return to the New York Yankees we are going to be getting to your voicemails to your DMs and you know like I said you're going to be getting to hear a pretty great interview with Brian Hoke whom I'm sure you all know um JP how did, how did we feel about the end what, what kind of vibes did you get exactly from talking to Brian and kind of getting his feel for the team I that was probably one of the coolest things I've ever done. Um, yeah, I agree. Because he's someone who's just very, very good at his job, and I, yep. I think we. I remember we discussed earlier. He just and we asked him a question. I don't. I'm not sure how much he knew about what we were going to ask, and he took a split second to put himself together and just gave great answer after great answer. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so awesome to hear from someone who's around the team like mm-hmm. that. There every day, day in, day out, Tampa, New York, road games, playoffs. I mean, yeah, I mean, he he's doesn't, there for all he doesn't take, I'm not even sure how many you know minutes or hours he gets yeah. off just because of my days or like weeks. Yeah, exactly. Or how much he's able the to do. Yeah, there's always, you know, the, the content wheel is always turning there, which is it's it's astounding to a certain degree. And I think that speaks more greatly to the dedication of not only Brian, but just beat writers in general who dedicate so much of their time and their effort to whatever team they cover. In this case, it's the New York Yankees. And he has been doing it not only so thoroughly and so honestly and so well for so long, but like, like I said, for so long, I mean, 13 seasons, he covered Brett Gardner's MLB debut, which I mean, yeah, I mean the the longevity of it. 23 year olds, well, that that's that's ancient history to us. Oh yeah, it's impressive to a certain degree. I mean, you you think about, um, you, you kind of give a portion of yourself to a team if you're on the beat. I mean, he travels on the same schedule they travel on. Um, he's you know hearing a lot of these stories firsthand, and he's you know taking part in a lot of the the same processes that they go through with the traveling and the um you know showing up to the ballpark early and and putting in extra work to to have a better product um and that's something that you know it it's crazy i mean the the things that he's been able to experience from 2007 i believe he said he started Mm -hmm. um i think he's he's he was joking about how he can't even remember it himself um the 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 things that he's seen in his time there from the uh sign everybody in the free agent market yankees of 2008 2009 to the um the sort of old teams and the end of the core four era uh like he mentioned fab five as as willie randolph liked to put it to include bernie williams um but how that sort of disintegrated into the um era that we are now where um brian cashman sort of had more control to um 
do what he wanted with the team and, yeah, and it, put that into place with with the young guys, the pre-arb guys who are, yeah. you know, just surplus value machines. Um, and I think he's got a unique enough perspective to do when, you know, we touched on stuff about free agents and about um, how the Yankees were the only American League contender to improve drastically. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not to say that other teams took steps back, but they didn't take steps forward, which the Yankees definitely did. I, I really, I really value an opinion of his was like with such tenure because he has witnessed one of the more drastic culture transformations in Yankees history, to my knowledge. I mean, granted, I never saw like the, the rut of the 1980s and things like that, but like the transition from the George Steinbrenner business model to the Hal Steinbrenner business model for all its flaws and for all of George's flaws. And I'm sure, you know, we hear a lot about, the, the gripes that fans have with Hal Steinbrenner and the ownership on Twitter and everything. But he has witnessed that firsthand and the effect that, that it's had on the managing staff, like the coaching staff, the front office, the players, the fans, and himself, like even his occupation within the baseball sphere and the Yankees sphere. And I'm, I'm curious, Max, what you kind of took away more than anything from the, the time with Brian today. I mean, like, first off, all I had to do is DM him on Twitter, and he was like, yeah, sure, I'll come on. And it was a really easy process to get him yeah. on. And I, I mean, just just seeing that kind of interaction between the, the fans and the writers these days, like, you don't get that years ago. But, like, with power, mm-hmm. like, inter- like, how much interaction there is on social media, like, it's just crazy how much closer everything is. But overall, it was it was awesome. Like, I, like, I, like, just having someone that's been around the team as long as he has, as y'all said, just someone that's around the team every day. As mm-hmm. soon as spring training starts, he's there. He's there as soon as as soon as players start trickling in the locker room. As soon as they're leaving, he's there. And just having someone like that on on the show was dope. You know, just as a, as a fan. And I, I think it speaks to Brian and his own character. Not not as any knock on other writers that cover the team, but like. Like you said, he, you just had to DM him on Twitter. Not many beat writers, especially of his his platform and his tenure, will just have their DMs open like that. It's not like we had to go through some booking agent or some business email or anything. His DMs are just open. And like I don't necessarily blame by any means other writers and other, you know, media analysts and things like that for not having theirs open because God only knows like the the me- media industry in sports is just so volatile that if you say one wrong thing, people are coming after your head. And the last thing that I would want as as a writer and as a human being is somebody just like attacking me in my DMs because of something I said that, you know, that made them upset. But like the swiftness of the swiftness of how he responded to us and the, you know, he was very accommodating and all this stuff. It was, you know, it was it was a great experience, especially for our first guest to kind of like get our feet in the water and all this stuff. It was awesome. I mean, like going back to like what you said about the DMs and stuff like that, like there were one big reason why I have my DM closed. Obviously I'm not Brian, I'm not Brian and I'm not like having, I'm not like have all those followers and stuff like that, but I still have a good amount of followers and people, I, a lot of those followers are kind of coming at my neck now and then. So like I can see where like the issue would be like just having the DMs open, but there are just still there's the interactions between like, the fans and the writers it's just it's just awesome just seeing people and we.com guys are always talking to 
people who are, are hitting them up on Twitter. You see people at other publications like the athletic doing the same thing. It's just a good time, you know, even with like all the stuff that's happening in the news around like just in general, not just sports, just seeing how we can still both sides and come together. We can just, just uh, shoot the shit on the podcast and just have a good time. There's some value in being able to just have that be there. I mean, mm-hmm. the thing like you said about <clears throat> saying something wrong or whatever, and it's not, it's l- less than that. Even it, it's it, a lot of people will say that they follow reporters just for the information that they provide. And they often will disconnect the human that's providing it. And so <laughs> I think one of the most refreshing things is that not only is Brian such a reliable you know, source of information when it comes to the Yankees, but he also has, you know, his personality shows up a lot in his, you know, social media presence. And yeah. I think that that's something that's, you know, it, it comes out in a way that makes him so much more relatable and, and it makes it much more enjoyable to be looking out for more stuff uh, related to the Yankees off of his beat, just because he does such a good job with the cut and dry, you know, um, game wraps and, you know, other, you know, reassignments from spring training and things like that. And so to be able to, to talk to the, you know, get the voice behind the tweets and the, the sort of, you know, the man behind all of that stuff is, is a very unique experience. And that was uh, pretty, pretty, pretty incredible to do. Yeah, and I, I think Brian, I mean, granted, my, my scope is pretty small, having only really talked to him, but I think he very well exemplified the idea of like personifying members of the media and members of the media, especially, you know, we mostly in, mostly see it in like sports and politics, two very, you know, like fallible industries that they contain a lot of emotion and things like that. And it's very easy for people to, you know, have their polarizing, and strong opinions about people because not necessarily do they not like the person, but they may not like what they're saying. It's like, don't shoot the messenger type thing. And I think having somebody of Brian's uh, influence and experience, but also like having him be such a a personable guy, was really, I I think it, it helped and it will help everyone that's listening shape a better idea of how you can view people that, right on a sports team's beat or right just in general. And they have to deal with people day in and day out. And I, I don't know, it was, it was a very rewarding experience outside of what he provided in terms of insight on the Yankees. While it was obviously incredibly enriching in that regard, I think it was a very multifaceted enrichment experience for everybody. So on all those notes, um, we are very, very pleased to give you our inaugural guest on the core four podcast. Brian Hoke. So we're here with Brian Hoke. He's a Yankees writer for MLB.com, has been since the 2008 season, I believe, seven season. Um, 2007, yeah. 2007, wow. So he's been around for a little while. He is, if he were a player, he'd be the longest tenured Yankee. We are very glad to have him. And uh, without further ado, JP. So it's pretty well known. Luis Severino, CC Sabathia will start the season on the injured list um, with Masahiro Tanaka announced as the opening day uh, starter. How do you see the rest of the rotation coming together for um, for the end of March and the beginning of April? 
Well, first of all, I'm just staggered by what he just said about me being the longest tenured Yankee. Like, wow, <laughs> I, hadn't, I had not even thought about it in that term, but you're right. Yeah, I was. I covered Gardy's major league debut. So that's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, they've already said that uh, Paxton will be their number two starter and Jay Happ will be the number three to begin the season. Then you got them. The, the last two spots are up for grabs. And uh, I think you, you probably know the names by now, Jonathan Luizaga, Domingo Herman, Luis Sessa. Uh, they're, they're probably your most likely candidates to be four and five. I don't see them going outside the organization at this point. So I think they're going to try and go from within while they're waiting for Severino and Sabathia to come back. So I think uh, for two or three weeks, you're probably looking at the three guys I mentioned, plus two of those three. I, I think that if I had to guess right now, I'm still going to say that Luizaga and uh, Herman wind up being your four and five with Luis Sessa being in the bullpen as the, uh, a long man. I, I think people of doing that, I think, uh, you know, uh, Sessa's actually having a pretty good spring, but I think uh, they, they really like the upside of the other two guys. So, uh, that's the way I, I see Aaron Boone doing it, but um, all that's been announced so far is that the first three guys. Mm-hmm. So then, in your opinion, you mentioned how how good of a spring Sessa has um, has had to this point. Do you think that, especially given his his status, that he's um, out of minor league options? Do you think he ends up fitting better with the club in the long term as the long man, or do you think he maybe you know punches his way into the rotation uh, so that they could? maybe use someone else like Steven Tarpley out of the bullpen. Um, do you, do you th- where do you think his long-term future is? Right. Tarpley is definitely in the mix too. I, I think that that decision really hasn't been made yet, but I, I think they like the, the fact that Sessa has got the stamina of a starter. Um, he can collapse in the bullpen if he has to. And I look, look at his major league numbers and, and the performance hasn't been great. I think there's been a lack of consistency there. He would tell you that uh, his fastball command is something that he's been working on. Uh, but I mean, I think that, it's funny. Anytime I tweet out Luis Sessa's name, I always get a flurry of responses. Oh no, mm. this guy. I mean, he's going to be coming in at games when you're up or down by more than four runs. So uh, I, I really wouldn't worry too much about how you, who your long reliever is out of the bullpen. And as I said, I think the Yankees are higher on Herman and Loisaga, the stuff there. Loisaga pitched well, uh, did not pitch well last night. I, excuse me. Um, and the start before that, he pitched well for about three innings and got tired. Uh, so um, I, I think the stamina is a question with Luizaga and uh, I mean, there's question marks with Herman too. They're, they're not finished products, but like I said, you're, you're trying to get two or three weeks out of these guys before you should have Severino and potentially Sabathia back in the rotation. And I think that, um, you know, if by May 1st, we're still talking about Luizaga and Herman in the rotation, something probably went wrong. Um, do you, th- do you see, there, there's been um, I'm sure that you've noticed that there's been people clamoring for some sort of pillow contract for Dallas Keuchel, um, exploring Gio Gonzalez, among other, you know, sort of scrap heap ish options, if you will. Um, you you mentioned that the, the organization is planning to try to you know patch these holes from within. Do you see any scenario in which they would go after uh, an external arm? Yeah, for sure. I, I think that they're open to anything. Um, I, I think that it's just what makes sense to them. I, you know, it'd be silly for Brian Cashman to say, no, absolutely not. We're not looking at anybody outside the organization because they're always looking for things that pop up. You know, uh, for example, their plan going into the offseason was never to sign Troy Tulowitzki for, um, they never thought that he'd be available, but things change. And, uh, so they adapt to that. As far as Keiko goes though, I, I don't see it just because they could have, jumped on him at any point of the off season. They right. back when they were talking about Patrick Corbin and then they, they pivoted to Jay Happ and uh, trading for Paxton. I, I think that 
you never heard Dallas Keuchel connected to the Yankees. And I think the, the fact that the Astros, who know him better than anybody, are only willing to give him one or two years right now, I think that speaks volumes. And uh, look, if Dallas Keuchel wanted to come to the Yankees on a one-year contract for you know whatever Jay Happ's making, seventeen million, I think the Yankees probably do that. But mm-hmm. I don't think they want to commit anything more than two years. And I think that, you know, with Scott Boris as his agent, he's certainly holding out for that. Right. Yeah. He wants that sort of uh, that big Boris offer that everybody seems to uh, seems to get when he's uh, he's in charge of those negotiations. Well, thank you, Brian. That, that does it for my segment. He, Go for it. And he Sorry. got it, didn't he? He got it. Yeah. We, yep, we, we were that's saying, the thing. Who's going to pay Bryce Harper? And then here Bryce Harper is playing for the Phillies tonight here at Steinbrenner Field. And. He's got his money. So yeah, indeed he does. What he's doing. Exactly. Well, thank you. That my, my uh, segment has mostly to do with pitching. We'll toss it over to, uh, to Andy. Uh, Brian, we're here with Brian Hulk at Brian Hulk on Twitter, MLB.com writer for the New York Yankees. Um, so going off the, you mentioned Troy Tulowitzki in terms of his, uh, they were uncertain or there was never really any indication that they were going to go after him. Now that he is in the picture and that this is established that he's going to be a part of this team. Have you noticed that there's any been or there's been any trends in thinking from the Yankees coaching staff or the front office in regards to configuring the infield for opening day? Not necessarily first base. I mean, we saw your tweet about Aaron Boone's attire for the night, but uh, <laughs> um, but like more in the middle infield between Tulowitzki, Torres, and Lemayhu. Yeah, I think uh, you know if you're writing down your opening day lineup, you're going to have Glaber Torres at second base. You're going to have Tulowitzki at short, and then Andujar at third, and. Uh, my guess would be it's still going to be Luke Voigt at first, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Booney was walking around the clubhouse today with a uh, Luke Voigt Louis Vuitton T-shirt on, and it, I mean, you know, I've seen that around the clubhouse. But uh, you know, if I'm Greg Bird, I wonder what I think uh, yeah. seeing that. So you know, while this uh, supposed competition is still going on. So anyway, I, I think that that's the way they're going to go. But Tulowitzki's probably going to need two days off a week, let's say, and so. A lot of people have been asking, you know, where DJ LeMay Hughes' bat's going to come from, and uh, I think there's your answer. He's going to play a couple days at second base while Glaber Torres moves over to short. He's probably going to play third base once in a while, maybe once or twice a week, while Andujar DHs maybe against a tough left-hander. Um, and he might see some reps at first base, too. Maybe he gets one day a week at first. So, you know, Boone's talked about it. He doesn't think it's going to be too hard to – fit LeMayhew in even without an injury and you know considering Tulowitzki's track record I mean this guy hasn't played a major league game in a year and a half so uh, I think that um, the idea that you can get through until Didi comes back with just Troy Tulowitzki I kind of doubt it I I feel like at some point he's going to need a break I think he's already slowing down a little bit here after a hot start in February and uh, it's crazy to talk about hot start in February when the games don't really matter all that much but uh, I think he's He's feeling some fatigue right now. You see the bat has slowed down a little bit, and uh, I, I think he'll get that back. But uh, you don't want to bank on just Troy Tulowitzki as your shortstop, and I don't think they are. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense considering we saw a lot of cries from Yankees fans after the acquisition of DJ LeMahieu, like we're paying all this money for someone that's going to quote-unquote back up. But in reality, mm-hmm. when you look at the configuration of how everything's going to fall into place, he's really not going to be backing up all that much. And um, right. do you think – do you think there are scenarios either early in the season or when we get later down the stretch that that'll dictate a stronger emphasis on infield or outfield defense, like a scenario in which Stan will play left field and Duhar will DH and then an infield of, you know, DJ LeMayu at third, maybe to Lewitsky at short, or, you know, maybe when Didi is back playing short, Glaber at second, things like that. I, I definitely do. And I think, um, look, look no further than, 
game four of last year's division series mm-hmm. when everything was on the line and you had CC Sabathia on the mound, who was a contact pitcher and uh, they didn't want Andujar out there at third base. Turned out also, you know, in hindsight, we didn't know it at the time, but Didi Gregorius was hurt and playing with an arm that needed surgery. So you kind of needed a, a better defender on the left side because uh, your shortstop didn't have an arm. So it's crazy yeah. that they went into a do or die playoff game that way. But anyway, um, going forward, I think that if you're, if you're going to put a premium on defense, then I think LeMahieu will play third over Andujar and, um, you know, Glaber Torres, I, I'm interested to see what he can do playing shortstop on a semi-regular basis. I mean, it is his natural position coming up. I think he's uh, enjoying the challenge of it. Um, I know that Yankee people think he's better suited at second base, but that doesn't mean he can't play short. So I think there's a whole lot of different ways they can configure things. And, um, you know, and I think the wild card obviously is Tulowitzki's health because none of us knows really, um, look, you, you've seen two or three weeks here of him, but we don't know what the next two or three weeks or months are going to look like with Troy Tulowitzki. So uh, a lot can change. And I, my guess would be it probably will at some point. Yeah. And just quickly going off of that, shifting away from the middle infield a little bit, you know, further down the field, have you heard any rumblings about the uh, noticeable improvement in Gary Sanchez's defense? Certainly to the eye test thus far, he he's impressed. Yeah. I, I think that, um, I think that shoulder injury, probably bothered him a lot more than he let on. And I, I think it probably hurt him more offensively than defensively, but um, you know, Gary's always been a plus defender in certain areas. You know, obviously we always talk about the blocking and the balls and uh, you know, obviously the Yankees don't want to see him chasing balls to the screen. They're tired of that too, but the throwing is a positive and uh, they think the pitch framing, the calling is positive. So I mean, all you have to do is talk to the pitchers on the staff. They actually like throwing at Gary Sanchez. I don't think that's just lip service. I think that they know he's got his deficiencies with the ball blocking. And uh, you look at his numbers with the pass balls and wild pitches and they're up there and it's obviously something he needs to work on, but uh, there are enough other aspects of Gary's game that make him a big league catcher. And uh, that's why the Yankees are doubling and tripling down on him as Brian Cashman put it, because they actually believe he is the frontline catcher in this league. And, uh, don't be fooled by what you saw last year. He's closer to what he was in 2016 and 17. So we'll see. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to hand it over to Max now. All right. Thanks, Andy. Uh, so, Brian, uh, what have been the general vibes around the team so far this spring? Like in regards, uh, you know, this series squad against uh, teams that you covered in the past? I think it's a relaxed clubhouse. I think this is a continuation. I mean, this is Aaron Judge's team. I think they take his – the. I think they take their cues from him. Um, you know, it's kind of business as usual. I mean, they're here to prepare and they want to win, but they're also here to have some fun. And I, I think you've got a clubhouse full of younger guys. I, I remember covering some of the Yankee teams toward the end of the core four days where it, it had gotten a little bit stale in there. And you, you sense that there were not many tomorrows in the room, if that makes sense. You know, you were coming to the end of Mark Teixeira and Alex Rodriguez and, Jeter was coming to the end and Posada retired and um, you know, you go on and on and you know, Mariano could probably still be pitching if he wanted to, but that's another story. Um, I, I think that having that young energy in the room, the Luke Voigt's, uh, you know, the Aaron judges, the Luis Severino's, I mean, you've got a, a bunch of guys whose best days are still ahead of them. And so I think they sense that excitement. They know they're a good team. They won a hundred games last year. I know fans think it didn't, feel like it, w- it was a good year because they finished eight games behind Boston, but I don't think the Red Sox are going to be as good this year. They certainly didn't upgrade the way 
the Yankees did this offseason. I don't think anybody in the American League upgraded the way the Yankees did. And you go through all the contenders. Are the Astros better? Are the Indians better? Are the Red Sox better? I don't think so. So, um, I, you know, the Yankees have improved on a 100-win team. I know everybody wanted them to get Harper and Machado, but they spread their money around. And I, I think, you know, time will tell what it turns out to be. But on paper, I, I like this squad. And I, I think they've got a really good shot at winning this division. All right. Uh, so going off kind of, you know, the old, you're talking about the core four uh, guys, how is like the presence of legends like Willie Randolph, Bernie Williams and Andy Pettit, like guys like that. How does that impact the younger guys that are in camp? It's cool. I mean, it's cool. Like I remember talking to Andy about, you know, when, back in the day when he was a player, you'd get excited because uh, Whitey Ford and Yogi Berra and, Reggie Jackson were all hanging out in the coach's room and you'd kind of go in there and just want to steal a moment with them. And now you've got, uh, these guys that I, I, you know, it's funny. They're guys that I grew up watching, uh, like Pettit, for example, or Bernie, uh, and there are these quote unquote legends and the, the old timers coaches. And, um, you know, it's, it's great to see them around. Um, uh, I, I think that you have to remember a lot of these players are in their early twenties and, mid twenties. So they kind of have that status now. And I guess, I guess Reggie's one of the oldest old timers in the room now. So it's crazy to, to think about that because I remember when he was one of the younger ones. So, uh, you know, time marches on, but I think that having those guys around is something the Yankees do really, really well. They, they touch base with their history. Nobody celebrates their history better than the Yankees, because I think in part, nobody has a better history than the Yankees. No team's ever won more world series than the Yankees. So why shouldn't they celebrate that? And, um, so they've been good about keeping these guys in the fold, keeping them around. You know, I was just walking through the clubhouse before I took this call and yeah, I saw Willie Randolph and David Wells and Bernie Williams. And, uh, yeah, it's really a who's who Carlos Beltran was in there. Um, it's a who's who of, uh, baseball past. And it's almost like, uh, you see your old baseball cards walking by you. So that's pretty cool. All right, last question, and we'll let you go uh, cover the game tonight. Uh, what's what's Didi's role kind of been like in camp? Obviously, like he's been rehabbing from Tommy John, so he can't appear in games and can't really do as much, obviously. But what has he kind of been up to? I'm a cheerleader um, right now. I know he's frustrated. He's frustrated with it. And, you know, he wants to be out there today, or he wants to be out there yesterday. So. Uh, you know, he's, he's champing at the bit to get back out there and he's swinging a bat, no contact. And at some point he can advance to hitting off a tee and soft toss and all that stuff. But it's such a slow progression that um, I, I think it's got to be hard for him to be in uniform and see all these guys going out to play because, they, you know, you, you hear about some of these guys and how they love to play. And some guys love to play less. I mean, Didi's one of the guys who loves to play. I, I think that um, this is, it's his passion. He's got many passions. So he's been doing a lot with like video editing. And they, I saw him on the field today shooting a, a camera. He had two cameras on him. He was shooting infield practice. So he's trying to keep himself busy at the ballpark, but there's not really a whole lot that he can do. And um, when the team goes north, he's going to have to stick around here. And I think that's when it's going to get really tough for him because uh, you're just kind of stuck in groundhog day and waiting and waiting and waiting until he can find us playing games. But uh, the good news for him is everything seems to be progressing and uh, there's been no setbacks so far. So uh, what the Yankees have said is June, July, or August. And uh, you know, as long as things keep going in a positive direction for him, I think he's going to be on the shorter end of that. And I, I know that if he can do anything to get back in time for that London series, I think he will definitely. So 
Um, you know, I, I, I've kind of got the end of June circled on my personal book for him to come back, but, um, you know, his body will tell him what's possible, I guess. All right, Brian, thank you very much for your time. I think you made a really good point just a minute ago mentioning the Yankees history and something that people often forget and the fact that they do have the most World Series wins of any team in MLB history. It's also the most championships of any uh, sports team in history. But again, Brian Oak, thank you very much for your time. Uh, Brian writes for MLB.com, covers the Yankees, has for, uh, what? what's my math? Uh, what is that, 12 years now? 13 years? Too many. Find him on. <laughs> a long <laughs> Not enough. time. Yeah. Not enough years. <laughs> Not uh, enough, Brian yeah. Hook on Twitter. Thank you again very much for your time and your valuable insight and good luck covering you the got it, guys. Happy to do it. Thanks so much. So one of the storylines that's been one of the more interesting ones from from a certain point of view is that the Yankees actually have to do something with Jacoby Ellsbury now <gasps> because um, he yeah. had been working out alone in Arizona um, away <sighs> from the team, dealing with plantar fasciitis that he suffered in his um, recovery from his um, torn labrum in his hip. And so he got it on the couch. He's got to hate this guy. And so he, he's got to uh, cut this man. Oh my God. So he's actually reporting to Yankees camp Sunday and he will, you know, start working his way back, uh, you know, ostensibly into, um, into playing shape and into, you know, um, being, I guess, a guy that the Yankees can sort of count on. I don't know. He's sort of in the same category as Tulowitzki in terms of durability, which is to say not, very durable. So I just, where, where besides the 60 day injured list, does Jacoby Ellsbury fit on this team? Because the problem is if he's not legitimately injured, there's, they're not going to be able to do something with, you know, they can't just hide him on the, on the injured list. It doesn't work like that. You know, yes, they could. They've yes they could. I mean, they, they can't really at this point. They can't. Yeah, there are ethical I think dilemmas. I, there are. It doesn't matter. They've done it in the past. He was not injured all last year. <laughs> you I'm think sorry, the insurance company let them get away with that? You think? You think yeah, the insurance why not? company let them do that? Yankees. They're probably. I don't know. I'm not. You know. I don't insurance know. Insurance like, companies don't give about a shit who you are. Well, they, they don't they want will to pay not you. be handing out money for no reason. That's fair. That's that's fair. Stupid take, but. I just don't think he'll be on the roster. Well, you think they'll go he'll full? Be if he's healthy, because he'll go he has full to Pablo be Sandoval. I just cut bait. No, no. I think I there's going to be some out. kind of injury that just like kind of happens. How does he get injured like at like home? Like he's sitting home and he gets hurt. I mean, John Wall did that's it. That's what. John okay, Wall, but like, John Wall. Yeah. Okay, but that's something. Maybe Jacoby fell down the stairs. I hope he did. All right. Well, well, the other thing is maybe he probably hurt himself working himself back into, you know, doing something. I mean, plantar fasciitis is. Yeah, is, yeah we'll is, let you think that, JP. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Here's the thing. I, you know, it's hard to rely on, on him to do anything right. And I mean, I, I think it's sort of astounding to me that they're they're actually going to get their hand forced on this because he had the oblique strain and then something was up with his back and then it was the torn labrum in his hip and it was just like comical the string of injury you know comical in a, in a the sense that that it almost seems fake kept, yeah, yeah it, it seemed you know up, the, like, yeah, the jokes right? about insurance fraud here you yeah, know exist kind of real it, because he it just was just like, like, holy crap. Like he's got what now? Like, yeah, I, I think the thing with Jacoby 
is well, like once once I think we'll see him in a position where he can make an impact on the roster in one way or another, like that he could be in the dugout in on the lineup card. I think that won't be realistically for another maybe two months at the very least. I <laughs> yeah, think. yeah, because I mean, like, they can definitely get away with starting him. He can start on the ten day injured list. I mean, yeah, like he he's you know they can sort of kick the can down the road on it a little bit, but. You know whose roster spot really? Well, it's it's that's the thing. It would be Tyler, Tyler Wade who's it would be Tyler Wade. Be, well, it, it'll be really interesting. I don't even get why we still have this conversation. Like he brings nothing to the table. If he shows that he's healthy, Jacoby, like just let him go. Like what is he going to bring to the Yankees? Like they have uh, probably they a lot more than Tyler Wade. The no, exact yeah. I, I really, really make about that. When Tyler Wade is 50% he's a better baseball player than Tyler Wade. I'll, oh, die, I'll, I'll die. What, what, you How do you me? know he hasn't you kidding me? He hasn't played in two years. How could you say Tyler that? Tyler Wade has never produced at, at a major league level in his okay. life. Okay. Jacoby Ellsbury was, once, think at this was once one of the more, one of the more yeah, elite players in major league baseball. It's 2019. That's 10 years ago. Did you just call him almost? All right, elite. He had you, one good you, year. You Go read the stats and get back to me. He had one good year. Go read the stats and get back to me. How many, That's one more than Tyler Wade has ever dreamt of having yeah, in his life. And it life. was ten years ago, almost. I don't give a shit if I don't it was show him ago. Ten years ago. <laughs> the thing, oh the thing God. about it. Oh gosh, how, how old is Ellsbury going to be this year? Thirty-five. Something like that. There's, I don't know. there's something to be had for Tyler Wade being a pre-art player on the bench and being, you know, twenty-three, twenty-four, and not producing versus Jacoby Ellsbury being like thirty-five, being paid twenty-one million dollars and not doing anything. I just think that that's. I would rather pay. I would rather pay Jacoby Ellsbury all that money to sit on the bench and maybe produce once in a blue moon. Twenty seventeen, he was not an awful player by any means. He was not. He was a platoon no, player, I but mean, he was the an concussion awful. screwed him over. That's what happened. Yeah. Like when he was Hicks healthy was and when he was on the outfielder. field, like when he was healthy and when he was on the field, he was a. I, I mean, I don't know the numbers. This is like JP's thing, but like to my eye test, he was a, I guess, an above or average player. Like he was not an active detriment to the team, like no, Tyler Wade is every time he steps on the field, batting 168 for the three months that he's in the major leagues every year. I mean, we can't con- con- like continue to delude, our- delude ourselves that Tyler Wade is just going to magically flip some switch and become the Trey Turner that we think he all could be. Uh, in his I mean, defense, it's idealistic. I mean, it's idea- yes, he, he hasn't really had the opportunity. He hasn't had the consistent at bats, all these things. But like, yes, he's impressed in spring. I don't know. But that's he's just such a big question mark, and obviously Jacoby Ellsbury is as question mark as anybody is in the world. But well, the, Ellsbury up until the up until the concussion in 2017, he was hitting 281 with a 771 OPS, which is uh, not the greatest, but also definitely not the worst. As I mean, his I think his defense in center field was was solid enough to the point where he was you know a net positive. And yeah. I think I think. I don't know if it's the Yankees. I don't know if it's the nature of concussions themselves, but the Yankees at least recently have had a really bad, I don't know if it's a reputation, but they've had a really bad sort of record of handling concussion recovery. Like Clint Frazier lost all of last year. And I'm wondering how much of it is related to the Yankees and how they handled concussions because Ellsbury missed just about a month and then came back and, you know, he had that awesome September 
but he hit before that he hit 200 you know he yeah. had a 623 ops for june through august and then you know resurrected it by hitting 337 in september and i think he wow. he might he might not have been right until until then and so it's just they were the 2017 was a little bit 2017 team was a little bit more desperate for for bodies so i think they were kind of saying like hey like i know well, you can't really see straight but like <laughs> let's get the fuck out there yeah i mean that that could be part of it to a certain degree i mean i think it's hard to sort of um pinpointed as as one one thing or another because i know aaron hicks wasn't really the you know he got you know not as much playing time he missed a bunch of games too in the first month that that ellsbury was was um was out hicks hit 290 and you know, was had an 820 OPS. And that was sort of the first look of, oh, man, like we've got something that we can work with here with Aaron Hicks. And, you know, fast forward to today where Aaron Hicks is the guy who's got the contract to be the the center fielder for the New York Yankees, while Jacoby Ellsbury is the guy who will be on a rehab assignment to possibly be the fourth outfielder in late May. And so, I mean, that's that's quite possibly his only upside at this point. And so, uh, I mean, I think it's sort of interesting to see how Hicks is, is the guy now and Ellsbury missed his shot. And I mean, that's, that's the reality of it is that Aaron Hicks is, is the guy that won't, you know, I don't think he's moving. I don't think I, I just like, I don't know. What are they going to, what are they going to do with Jacoby Ellsbury? Because he was supposed to be the center fielder. He won't be. Hicks is actually he, good. I just, that's, all I, I, that's all it has to be said. Hicks is good. Yeah, I mean, he, he can't be relied on for anything. Ellsbury can't be relied on for anything. No, he can't be except. John and I ironically were at the game that Jacoby Ellsbury yeah. was injured in. We were. In like the second play of the game where he just uh-huh. went. Uh, fucking colliding the first the wall. So, was that the one against he the Mets? He made the catch though. No, it was he against, make um, the catch. Was it the Royals? It was against Kansas City. Yep. Yeah. So I, I think City. moral of the story: we have to stop playing the Royals because they hurt. Yeah, they hurt Aaron Judge. Well. Jacob and, Scott. I mean, I actually don't really mind playing the Royals because they stink. But besides that, might want to start scratching those off the schedule. But going back to the the outfielders of the New York Yankees and veering away a little bit from the uncertainty of Jacoby Ellsbury, we can look more to the uncertainty of another Yankees versatile center fielder slash left fielder in Aaron Hicks. And the uncertainty that has arisen, it's not even new, really, but like the, uh, I guess... Recurring uncertainty in his back injury and what that's you know going to bring to the table this year. I mean, I, I think it's it's it, he said pretty recently, he said, I feel pretty good. I feel, you know, I'm not worried that, you know, Aaron Boone said, I'm not too worried about it. Um, you know, uh, it's been downplayed over and over and over, but you know, Aaron Hicks hasn't played in the game in close to two weeks. And so you, they can say they're not worried as many times as they'd like to, but 
you know, if they don't sort of put their money where their mouth is on this, it's going to, you know, I've seen a lot of people on, you know, a lot of different social media sites saying, you know, we'll see Aaron Hicks in June kind of stuff. Yeah. Just because, you know, to a certain degree, you sort of are like, well, if it's such a, you know, nothing issue, why, why is he not playing? Why are we getting Brett Gardner in center field over and over and over? Because that's not good for Gardner is he's too old to be an everyday center fielder because it'll wear him down. He could be there for a role player, but like we need somebody. I mean, he could start there five years most twice a week, but yeah, it's just the, the problem is, and it's sort of interesting that we just finished talking about Ellsbury is balancing the roster and also being able to, um, have those priority positions covered to a certain degree because, you need someone who can play shortstop and you need someone who can play center field on any, you know, any bench. And the Yankees are in the situation where they're comfortable having their backup shortstop simultaneously be the starting second baseman. Yeah. And I mean, that carries, they did that last year. Glaber Torres was, you know, the backup shortstop, you know, once, once they needed to, well, you know, once he was there, he was, the backup shortstop unless they really needed to give both him and Didi a day off and they would, you know, start Ronald Torres or something like that. But oh. it, it, I think, you know, the, the, at this point, the center field depth behind, it goes like Hicks Gardner. And then you start, you know, shrugging and looking around and thinking yeah, judge yeah, could yeah. fake it in mm-hmm. center. I mean, um, I don't think he would really have that much of a problem if we're being honest. I mean, he did it for one game. Up, I mean, they could call up Clint. I thought he um, came up as his center fielder. Yeah, he came up as a center fielder. They would probably have to go like Tyler White in center. Yeah, that was that, that was where I was going to head next. I'm sure and I think that, that he could talk. because, you know, because that speed, I mean. Yeah, he's fast enough to play center. It's, oh, yeah, it's, it's an instinct and stuff like that, you know, a question about that. I think but, there's an inherent value in having the three guys of Brett Gardner, Jacoby Ellsbury and Aaron Hicks, if they are, you know, given they are healthy, I think there is a value in having the three of them on the roster because we know how, I mean, I guess fragile Hicks and Ellsbury are. We know of the concerns with Brett Gardner in the past couple of years with his second, like second half collapses and his overusage. So I think if there was an ability to establish some sort of, not not a platoon not a rotation but like some sort of balance between the three of them and the thing that kind of makes that tough is the fact that both Gardner and um Ellsbury are lefty so it's not necessarily a true platoon in that regard but um I think there is some sort of inherent value in the in the fact that the three of them are plus defenders and can play both center and left field on any given day I, I mean and given the fragility of honestly the three of them it's also, I mean, uh, I think what will help Brett Gardner the most will be getting um, John Carlos Stanton into the outfield more. And I think that he's sort of Stanton is more aware of his role as a combination of designated hitter and corner outfielder. And I think as a result, his conditioning and his uh, ability to be ready will be a bit better this year, which, you know, isn't isn't to say he was not ready last year, but I think that there is some adjustment due for him 
Uh, and so he'll be more, I think him in left field more will give Gardner more time to just be off and not worry about being a center fielder too, yeah. or sort of all that stuff because they didn't, they didn't really play Stanton in left field that much last year. And, and I think that that's something that can give Gardner more time without sacrificing too much at the plate or in the field. Well, I'm a big believer in the whole, like, um, if you're playing the field, uh, you're kind of more in there. Like, like I say, like they, t- like I used to personal story here. I, like, I used to DH sometimes in my like, high school. And I would feel like if I was DHing up on the field, I wouldn't be so in the game. Uh, I don't know. It's like kind of like a, it's not like a similar thing per se for Stanton, but like, I feel like his, when he was at his best was when judge was out and he was playing right field and he was in the lineup all the time. I know he was hurt. And then you take some games off and Shane Robinson had to play right field. God, oh God, that was terrible. He wasn't ever but, uh, in right. He wasn't really ever in right that much, though. I mean, he had to play, he had to play I, right. I, yeah. When I, Judge was out. Yeah. I think I, there are also some other factors that would play into that. But yeah. Like, he came from Miami for fucking eight years and it was the middle of the summer. I mean, it's a bit of an adjustment period. Like, we, we saw his early season struggles and I don't think it's any secret that, you know, playing baseball games in 35 degree weather was not necessarily the ideal conditions for someone who spent the first half of his career in Miami. But I, I think there is, yeah, sir, there's certainly some, some value in what Max's point is. Yeah. I think also it, it's a, it's a comfort thing. I think he got used to his role when, when judge was out because judge missed, um, how many games did he miss? He missed 45 games. About 50. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. he last, he played July 26th and returned to the lineup on September 14th. And and I think Stanton got a little more locked into what he knew he was, you know, he knew what he was doing a bit more. Um, and so I lost my place here. Um, September 14th was when he came back. So in those 46 games, it's interesting because that was actually one of Stanton's worst stretches of the season. In those 46 games, he hit 222 with a 780 OPS, but he hit 10 home runs and drove in 28. And so, they, you know, he was hurt around that. And I think that sort of contributed to what, you know, people saw as, as, as a bad season, I guess, from Stanton. But I mean, he hit 323 in July, June and July were his two best months where he was OPSing 950 in June and 876 in July. And so, you know, it, it's crazy how when you look at Stanton, um, you know, a season where the guy hits 38 homers, people are still complaining. And I, I, I don't know. I think an extra season for Stanton as a, as a combination outfielder and designated hitter will do him well. And will also in, in another season of the fans with their eyes on Stanton, will see that he is way more legit of a player and way more complete of a player than, um, than, it, you know, people sort of looked and saw. 
So it seems a bit ridiculous that we're worrying about uh, Jacoby Ellsbury on the field, but there are some interesting changes that both the Major League Baseball and the Players Association have um, come up with that will be implemented <laughs> on field, unlike Jacoby Ellsbury. Um, yeah. Some effective immediately, some effective beginning next season. And we'll start with what's going to be effective immediately. Um, there's no longer going to be two separate trade deadlines. <clears throat> there's no longer trades after July 31st. The... Um, system where you could put players through waivers after um, July 31st um, and they have to clear before a trade could be uh, completed is now gone. Everything has to be done on the 31st of July. Uh, Also, they've changed all-star voting so that the top three players essentially have a runoff on on an all-star election day. Um, Top six for outfielders. Um, And they get bonus payments for... um, for being top three or top six for outfielders. Um, The home run derby has two and a half million dollars of prize money and the winner gets a million dollars. They're reducing mound visits from six to five. And they're the the one that makes the most sense to me is that they're reducing the time in commercial breaks. um, Two minutes every single game. I believe it had been two minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah, I think two minutes between innings. Between commercial breaks, between innings, yes. Oh, it so, depends okay. on the um, provider, I think. If it's like a national game, I think they cut it down five. And if it's like a local game, it's cut down to ten, um, I think, right? Or am I just hanging that out of my ass? No, that that's the old rule. Oh, okay, then never mind. I'm they sorry. got rid of the exception for national in this okay. um, in this change, um, and they're they're creating what they're, what they're calling a joint committee to discuss different sort of ideas and possible further rule changes. Um, I think we can start discussing the the effective immediately one the the trades after July thirty first. I think as Yankee fans, we think of that. Most recently, with the acquisition of Andrew McCutcheon last year. Yeah. Um, See, my after- thought with that is, I, I think any like August trade deadline trades that a team is still reaping the benefits from should be over, like overturned. They should be undone now, which would effectively send Justin Verlander back to the Detroit Tigers and off the Houston Astros. I think just in you know instances like that. I think now that the the rule has been changed and there's no more August deadline that they should be overturned. Yes, it should be changed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just think it's, yeah, it's a little, it just seems like it's a solution in search of a problem because you know, the Yankees, Aaron judge, I think I read was hit in the wrist and had his big injury. I think it was five days before the July 31st trade deadline. And so can you imagine being a contender you don't have to be the yankees but can you imagine being a contender and having your best player get hurt five days before the deadline and know that especially because you're the yankees someone is going to try to squeeze you you know ridiculous amounts to try to get an outfielder in that time period where instead you know you know what you can hunt for with the august with the old August waiver system. And that's how they got, they got Andrew McCutcheon with the giants still paying part of his salary for a triple a utility infielder and a like 23 year old in short season, a ball still. And so I, I don't know. I don't like that. That I don't think that change really is going to affect rosters or player movement in any better way. You know, I don't think it's going to yeah. make the Craig Kimbrels and Dallas Keuchel's of the world sign 
earlier no, because I, I honestly don't know what the intended goal was it's just a move yeah. to like make a move that's all it is yeah it, it feels like it's just it you know doing something to do something I, There's I nothing. think Rob Manfred needs to do a lot less the I'm not opposed it just makes no sense is yeah it doesn't make any sense better. if there was if the system was being abused if there was real cases of of you know abuse of the system sure investigate it change it i don't really care but it, it, like i said before it's a problem in search of oh no excuse me it's a solution in search of a problem yeah i and so that's just a little <laughs> crazy i mean I, I don't know i don't know what the stats are on the mound visits um but do you are they gonna the change the since there's only one deadline are they gonna change the deadline or is it still gonna be july 31st it's july 31st like 15th yeah that would make sense in my because opinion baseball is such a yeah they should push it back baseball players and like there's just so much room for error and uh, like I, I feel like for July 31st to be the only trade deadline is a is a bit much. Like if yeah, there's I only think... going to be one, it should be either the like middle of August to compromise between the two, or August 31st, which is yeah, which was in essence the, in years prior like the last. Well, there was no trade deadline, deadline before, but the thing was you had to be to be postseason eligible. The player had to be within the organization September 1st of that year. So August All 31st right. then became that deadline. You know, you could oh, get so a that player. Was more, that was more of like a form, soft, like a, you know, okay. See, deadline I never, even, I never actually knew that. Yeah, well, it, it, it was treated like a deadline because teams that were still it, yeah, making trades at that point actually had something to gain or lose from it. Yeah. Um and so that's why, you know, they needed it done by that date. I, you know, two years ago, the Yankees got, um, they got, they had to get Eric Kratz from Cleveland yeah. because both Gary and Romine were suspended from the brawl in Detroit and they needed another catcher and they didn't, I think Higashioka had a back injury and they were, um, you know, they needed that because, you know, what if something happens, they didn't have another playoff eligible catcher in the organization who they'd be willing to throw out on the field. And so they did a cash trade with Cleveland for Eric Kratz. Yeah. <laughs> but like, did you guys you know, know that the Justin Verlander trade was made like two minutes before the deadline? Did you guys really got that? through did that? You, wait, I think like, there's a sports hard. illustrated story about it. That, 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 that was being sarcastic because literally for like, I, I, I couldn't like throughout the entire playoffs, that the Astros won in 2017. I don't think there was a game that Justin Verlander pitched in that they didn't mention that. It turned into his Todd Frazier met Derek Jeter. Type oh my thing. gosh. It was awful. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe that was just... I, I feel like I had seen that, that I feel like, like you, there are certain Twitter, issues that like, are magnified by you. I don't know. Me? I don't magnify. Yes. I, don't, I don't exaggerate anything. I'm a very... Of course yeah. not. Yeah. Um... The home run derby thing just seems like it's they're giving a bonus for the winner of the home run derby, which I think I don't know. A million dollars for one night's work is pretty pretty good, but also Yeah, that is pretty good. I think it'll be interesting to see if that gets players like I know uh, Jeff Passan of ESPN was speculating about how Aaron Judge might be motivated to win a million dollars, even though last year he was pretty clear that he wasn't gonna do it again after it was widely seen as one of the reasons he, you know exacerbated that shoulder injury um i think one of the good initiatives found you know as a silver lining to the one million dollars thing is i hope that it doesn't draw like i i well i mean i i hope it draws bigger names like you know judge stanton chris davis joey gallo like guys that actually hit home runs and not you know max muncie and 
and you know shitheads like they had last year. But like, I I also hope that the players either take the initiative or MLB like you know tacitly mandates that they use the million dollars that they win from the home run derby to like donate to, to a charitable cause of their choice or something like that. Like you kind of spin it in. Th- this is a great opportunity. Like we talk about marketing the players on the game. This I think is actually a step in the right. To, you know, I don't want to credit Rob Manford for literally anything, but this is, I think, is a step in the right direction because it offers so much room for getting your bigger names out there like jeff mentioned like you know this could be a draw for the bigger names you get them out there and then it's like hey these baseball players you know now you know their names you know what they look like how about you know you know what they're all about now they start donating their you know they're winning to whatever cause they you know they choose and yeah i think that would just be like a good good initiative for it would be good pr for the game it could be, and it'll also be bad PR for the game when someone like Aaron Judge, who at his current salary is not making that much money in an entire season, will and then be forced to, to will be forced to donate it to a different. Yeah, that's thing. that's I mean, awesome I don't know. thing. That's something that they're going to figure out in the next CBA, sort of as they go. Is the the pre arbitration compensation problem, and I mean that that's a problem. Um, yeah, and the All Star voting, I think, is interesting. And and I like that they're going to financially compensate players who are, you know, all-star voting by fans is sort of a weird beast, you know, because you've got Salvador Perez. And remember the year that the, the, the Royals fans voted like seven or eight of nine starters to be yeah. Royals. And like Omar Infante was batting below <laughs> 220 and was the starting second baseman for the American League. So I, I don't know. <laughs> well, the I thing think it's like- got to especially if you're tying a huge and i don't know it's not huge per se I, the the report didn't indicate how much they would be getting well yeah i mean it's still being enough that it's a that's a it's a um incentive yeah. but i just to me tying that to the fans who, who yeah typically have an, a bad sense of actually figuring out who the best players are i'm surprised mm-hmm. that it's not tied more to a little bit of input from maybe writers or most, you know, most of the weight going towards a player or coach mm-hmm. or some combination of a vote where like maybe the players votes count three times as much. The coaches count twice as much and the fans are just a one. Yeah. You know, that's actually not, I, I kind of like that idea, but see, the thing is I don't even trust the writers anymore after what I've seen them do to Aaron judge and Miguel and Duhar over the past two years. Yeah, well, I, I don't think it would go. Things. I don't think the writers would have anything to do with it. I would rather put it in the hands of the players and the coaches. Yes, exactly. The I, I would trust the players because the, the players are the ones that like see these guys day in and day out. And they there's too much emphasis on fan voting. And say, I remember, you know, because there, there are just so many, so many like baseball players that you have to vote on. You can't reasonably expect a fan to have like a completely, I don't expect fans to necessarily be unbiased and they're, or yeah, be unbiased in their voting, but like there's no reasonable expectation for a baseball fan to keep up to date with all the games of all the teams like you do in football, because football, right. you spend one, one afternoon and one night per week and you get to see every team, but it, you don't get right. to see much. Limited, and I think, yeah. you know, that's the beauty of it. But like also at the same time, I remember listening to Colin Cowherd during the football season and he was, you know, for his faults, he was, he made a very good point going into the, I guess the objectives and the expectations placed on fans versus members of the media. 
And he was saying, I don't expect fans to set aside biases. I don't expect fans to act with complete objection, you know, like um, objectivity in, right. in voting and things like that. They're fans. That's like, they're supposed to be irrational. They're supposed to be fanatical. They're supposed to be all these things. Members of the media are supposed to be, you know, fans and students and, you know, admirers of the game, but with a lens of objectivity that you don't necessarily have to mandate in fans. And I think that is a good indication of, you know, how we should structure a lot of this all-star voting with stronger emphasis on the players, you know, in their opinions, like by far, and also a little bit more emphasis on the evaluations of members of the media, because, you know, granted there are some that we all have our gripes with, like my, you know, my detestment for John Heyman and things like that. But, (laughs) but, you know, it is their job after all. And a fan's job is not like you said with the Royals and they had seven guys starting on the team and and half of them were batting below 250 type stuff. It's, you can't reasonably expect the fan to act objectively and all-star voting is something that should be handled at least relatively objectively. Yeah, I, I completely agree about that. And I think, you know, the, the real thing that it comes down to in a lot of ways is that there's always been a lot of mutual respect between players when they're on the field and they sort of, you see that during the all-star games and, and things where, the competitive barriers are a little different than they usually are. And so there's a lot more, you know, brotherly, you know, more, you know what I mean? When I say brotherly, you know, the fraternal aspect of the fact that there's 25 guys on 30 teams that are ostensibly going for the same thing sort of goes away for a little bit. And it's a celebration of baseball in that way. And that's why I love Um, the all-star game, honestly, like, I, yeah, I don't absolutely. get the same feeling from any other all-star game. I mean, NHL is, is much smaller scale and like they have, they put on a nice show, like with the skills competitions and things, but like, yeah, they've like changed it up a lot in the past few years doing like eight different teams and stuff. Baseball is the most authentic all-star game. It is. I think yeah, it has I think the most I fun skills with competition with the home run derby. I wish they would add like, if they could work in something reasonable to add, something like a fielding aspect or something about pitchers. I don't know. Like home run derby is yeah, cool and everything, but like, I don't know. There, there are concerns with, if you have like a competition, Oh, let's see who could throw the hardest. Whose ace is going to throw out their arm and be out for the rest of the season. And stuff right. Like that. Yeah. That's that wouldn't, that would never be. Yeah, approved. That, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't go over well, but like that, there's just so much. There's so much I feel like the all-star voting game and it's awesome. Yeah. I, I just don't know whether the voting thing was as much of a deal as it, it's being treated as, but yeah, I actually forgot. I mean, we were talking about that in the first. I think place, it's okay. But. I think it's okay. I just think it's a bad, not bad, but I don't think it's as strong of a concept as it would be if the financial bonus from being a top three player at any position, top six for outfield. Um, it, I just feel like that is going to reward the most popular players exactly. and not the and best players. Because mm-hmm. I've said it a couple of times in multiple episodes of the show, there's guys like Anthony Rendon who've been top, top players at their position who've never gotten an all-star bid before. And as a result, 
are not going to be privy to that sort of bonus. And I don't know whether it's because of fan voting or player voting, how he didn't end up there. I'm not really up to date on that sort of that's kind of baseball politics. But it's, you know, I think it's going to get I I just I don't know. I'm not I'm not a gigantic fan of having the financial incentive being tied to a fan vote, which is not going to yeah. be as educated as it could be. And I'm curious to see how the players will react to it. If they even mention it, like I, I I'm curious how they'll react because it's not something that I would imagine a guy like Aaron judge or, you know, like, I don't know. I, I can't see Aaron judge or Mookie Betts being interviewed at, at the all-star game or during the process of voting and being like, yeah, you know, like I'm really excited to be on the, be on the team and start in right field. And I'm even more excited about that, you know, million and a half dollars. I'm going to get, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's just a weird addition to something that was. I, I just know, also so the, simple. It's an odd incentive also, because I think one of the things I read was that they're hoping the players will help, you know, they'll campaign for themselves up to the election day, which I think but that just looks greedy at that point. Yeah. Well, also because now that they've publicized the financial bonus, the thing is, well, the thing is, the top three who campaign for themselves anyway are um, are going to get the money as well as the spot. So it's sort of like you you're not going to be greedy once you are campaigning, but it it's sort of you know, I see where you're coming from on that. It's yeah. sort of uh, I don't know. I, I I just agree with your thought that that it's going to be weird asking a lot of players who are traditionally more grounded into themselves and into the idea of the fact that they are individuals playing at an all-star level on a team that is trying to do something. You know, the goal isn't to be so good in the first half that you end up on the all-star team. The goal is to be so good in the first half that you're in a playoff spot. And if you end up being one of the top three players in your position in your league, you know, in that process, great. But it's just, it's never anybody's focus. You know, the, in, when you hear players give interviews and they're asked about what do you want to do this season? What do you want to accomplish? And you know, never, no one's ever saying, oh, I want to start in the all-star game. They're saying, yeah, I no. want to be I'm holding up the commissioner's trophy exactly. in October. And so I think that same sort of concept will apply to a lot of different players. And I think, yeah, the money will be nice. Yeah, the sort of hype, I guess, that will be sort of, you know, the lines around it will be drawn differently with the new system. I just don't think anybody's really focusing on it. And I think it'll sort of be interesting to see how that plays into it's, it's all a marketing thing in the end. Mm-hmm. And so how that sort of plays itself out, um, come, you know, once the July, you know? Yeah. And honestly, while we're on the topic, I'm going to go off on a, on a teeny bit of a tangent. I'm going to try to keep it brief, but in in the marketing aspect of major league baseball and even in like the all-star game regard i tweeted a couple days ago i think it was like last week about how mlb has received such great feedback on their initiatives to mic up players during games and one of my favorite personalities in baseball trevor bauer has been such an ambassador of you know exposing uh fans to like personalities of players and like doing different uh, charitable initiatives. And he's always asking, like the other day he tweeted at Baker Mayfield, Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham Jr. About like, you know, now we're all in Cleveland. Let's, let's have like a mic'd up home run uh, batting practice slash home run derby and this stuff, which would be awesome. Like Trevor honestly should retire right now and go into the front office of the MLB, but they receive such great feedback on 
like the mic'd up specials and they don't do the right things with them. I think, I think they take it, they take this feedback and they say like, Oh, okay. So you guys want more of exactly what you have right now. So here's your second spring training in a row of Mookie Betts mic'd up in right field. And Oh, you want to have some cringeworthy conversation between him and Brock Holt in between innings. Like, Oh, here you go. Like, uh, no, like show us like everybody knows who Mookie Betts is at this point. I think that's, I think it was safe to say. Yeah. We want to see more. Like we want to see more players. We, like yeah, I think baseball can't simultaneously internally complain that they have a problem marketing their players and then choose like two guys to work with. I know that there's enough exposure to go around, you know, to um to like make it make it work in a, in that way, and so um I think you know, they'll be able to market it properly, but yeah, I think it does end up getting a little bit stale with the, um, no, yeah, yeah, I don't mean to interrupt you, but like, yeah, it it gets stale. And I I think what I continue to say in the little mini tweet thread I had is that you can't, if you're major league baseball shy away, especially in today's game from marketing and miking up your young superstars who are native Spanish speakers which seems like it would be something kind of minor. But when you think about it, there are so many of your dynamic, like invigorating, you know, rising stars in this league or already superstars like Francisco Lindor, like Gleyber Torres, Ronald Acuna Jr. And so many more that like, yes, they, I, I went on to say they work very hard off the field. Many of them to learn English and like accommodate teammates and accommodate the culture and accommodate the members of the media. But if you allow them to use their native language on the field, which they most likely do. I mean, you look at, Oh, they definitely do. Last year, the Yankees infield from second to third was all people who, you know, all players who spoke Spanish. So I can't imagine they were trying to struggle through speaking English in the middle of a game between Miguel and Duhart. Yeah. Like maybe if they're at a, you know, meeting on the mound, but like, if you allow them to do that and it's something so simple as subtitling the videos that you tweet out, could solve it, it. Like, I don't, un, I don't know what more concern there would be besides that. And like old people yelling about it, but like, it, like they did a special with Francisco Lindor last year. And I, he, he seemed like very in control of speaking English, which was, you know, like it, it was cool. Cause he's just a very energetic person, but like you allow some of these younger players and even you know, the older, but I don't want to say just the young guys, but like it would add so much to, allowing them to unlock their personalities and market them to the highest extent. And there would be nothing faked about it. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, don't no, I think it'll that. add to the authenticity of it. I, exactly. I just agree with the idea that there's not enough being done to sort of push them as more than, um, more than guys on a field playing a sport, because I think that that's, always been what they've pushed and mm-hmm. i think through differing different campaigns around the all-star game campaigns around who they are as people charities off-season work you know that'll allow it to them to be more authentic and i know the nba has been working to to market their athletes as more than just guys playing basketball and the nfl is sort of working on it to be more than just guys playing football and by you know having them talk and not just be guys on a field who do the baseball things, you know, to yeah, run around make and, it. and smack a baseball around. They're, they're, they're right, more exactly. than that. They're much more than that. 
exactly. And I think that, that can dynamic that can benefit just as sure. much as their players. They are people. And the thing is, I don't, I'm not asking for MLB to turn into the NBA and that it's a literal soap opera and it's just a tiresome routine of less focus on the sport. Cause the thing is like, like ESPN and things, they don't like, it's just so easy to market basketball because everybody is a personality. Like, that that's just tiresome. I don't want that for baseball. Well, I just want people a- to be able to see the personalities of these guys. Because like you look around, and then the dugout, they're laughing. They're like, they're 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 dicking around. They're they're kids. Gleyber Torres and Miguel Andujar are twenty two and twenty three years old. That's literally us, JP. They're yeah, us exactly out there. Like what we're doing right now is what they're probably doing in the dugout. Right, exactly. Talking and about people baseball. don't understand that. People are they see like, oh, he makes an errors. I he makes errors. I hate this kid. Once you learn about who somebody is, like you can in this capacity, it's either a lot easier or a lot harder to hate them. And yeah, I, I absolutely. Know. Well, some some you mentioned Miguel Andujar is I view him as a prime example of what you just said because he was someone who the narrative surrounding him is that yeah, his defense needs work, but he's the kind of guy who works on it. He's not mm-hmm. the kind of person who was, uh, you know, a, a poor defender as a result of a lack of effort. And so that's why I, I, I had a lot of, I, I, I kind of keep a lot of these opinions to myself, but seeing how people were responding to videos that he was posting of his work in the Dominican Republic and in Tampa and showing up early and all this stuff to people were still just be saying, Oh wow, he's still bad. Like all this stuff. That's just sort of disrespectful to the fact that a, he's a way better than you. And B, <laughs> the only way he's going to get better is by working on it. And so, yeah, people thought he was going to turn into Brooks Robinson after three weeks right, overnight. Awesome. Exactly. Like, oh yeah. He worked with Adrian Beltre a couple of days, you know, it, it's not going to be an overnight thing. Um, and so, you know, People who, oh, he's still double tapping. Oh, throw overhand, all this stuff. And it's like, you know, listen, it's it. you are not the Twitter infield coaches are not going to be helping him do anything. Yeah. And that's something that. You know, you can tell if you if you listen to broadcasts or read any of the articles or hear any of the interviews, you know, he says it himself. He just wants to help the team. (laughs) And so I want to earn my team. Yeah. You know, he's he's got that in him and that's the right way to go about it and so i think you know as he's going to be heading towards hopefully an an all-star worthy campaign this year for third base i I think that's why they can market it better and if he is in this election day thing and does get the financial bonus which could quite possibly be you know a substantial fraction of his actual salary because he's still a pre-arbitration player i think it'll be really interesting that he'll hopefully get more of a platform to sort of uh, show off who he is to a national audience. If I remember correctly, he was third in third baseman voting last year for the all-star game. And that was before he hit his stride of. Oh yeah. When he had that three thirty, he was only hitting like two seventy at the all-star break. If I'm correct. Yeah. I mean, he he was still third in in the voting. Yeah. I think there was a clear indication that he was a special special player at that point um and that was something that people recognized as they went along and how they you know treated him he was hitting 279 at the all-star break in 84 games um 
and then went on to hit 319 and hit 15 more home runs in the second half in 65 games. And that was his sort of, that was where he really came out and, and had that. Um, and that was awesome. So along with the changes that MLB is implementing along with the Players Association this year, there's a bunch of rule sets that are um, not going to take effect until 2020 season. And those are uh, some of the more drastic ones. Uh, they start by increasing uh, regular and postseason roster sizes from 25 players to 26 with a restriction on the number of pitchers they can carry and uh, changing September expanded rosters from 40 to 28, which is a pretty drastic drop. Uh, and I believe that there's going to be a limit on the number of pitchers who can be there as well. They're also changing the rules about position players pitching. It can only happen now in extra innings or if there's uh, a seven or more uh, run deficit, unless there are players who are going to be legitimate two-way players, which is defined as at least 20 innings pitched and at least 20 starts as a position player. Um the the most radical is the rule now requiring pitchers to face at least three batters per appearance unless there's a case of injury or the pitcher ends the half inning before facing three batters. It's such a bad rule. It's so bad, but we'll talk and about the last that. one. The last one is um, changing the rules specifically for pitchers who are optioned to the minors or placed on the injured list. They will be um, forced to stay on optional assignment. Um, for 15 days, like the old, um, the old disabled list rules. And, um, they figured that there has been a lot of manipulation of that rule, changing it to 10 days. Uh, so they are, are trying to make it so it will be 15 day absence. Uh, I imagine that rule has the same exception to it, um, from, uh, the previous rule, which has uh, exceptions for injuries, you know, if a player, if there's a disabled list maneuver, then they can um, bypass that. But um, start with the three batter rule, because that's the most unpopular in the reactions that I've seen. I, I just it, there's a certain strategy of having pitchers face the hitters that they're most likely to get out. And then there's people who counter argue that. You, your strategy should be you should have pitchers good enough to get three outs or face three batters, I guess, is, is what it really is. I mean, you know. it makes sense, but I mean, I don't even know. Like, it's just a part of the game that it's always like been. And it's such I don't know. I think it's just a bad move. Honestly, it makes it doesn't make any sense because in terms of, you know, like a lefty specialist now. <laughs> Um, and now that's gone. So, yeah. And wasn't this passed without the consent of um? Yeah, the players' association yeah, did which, not. Which did that's going to be an issue. I think that's going to yeah, be a, like, be. a big issue. I think it'll get I, ugly. You know. Oh yeah. It, it definitely. It seems like the players' association and the league are are sort of. Uh, there's a push and a shove, and it's sort of resulted in this um joint announcement but i just i don't think that there's a sort of veneer of of agreement that isn't actually going to be uh indicative of a permanent solution here yeah i think it's a concern for sure i mean there's gonna be a strike i think i mean yeah i mean it's inevitable at this point 
I, I read an interesting take. I, I don't remember who tweeted it. It might have been, I think it might have been Jason Stark of The Athletic who said it's interesting uh, as to what the union might be fighting for here because since the union represents everybody, they, you know, are trying to push what the players want as one thing, but also what what certain sets of players want others don't so you know hitters are probably excited about the prospect of pitchers are required to face three batters because a lefty specialist who can only get out lefties you know yeah. right-handed hitters might be hitting 300 against him and he has to face the next two guys if he comes in to face you know if he comes in to face a tough lefty I'll just, you know if he has to come in to face Joey Votto suddenly there's a right-handed hitter behind him it's Puig or Kemp or somebody like that mm-hmm. and that's the requirement that now is there. But at the same time, they also represent those, those specialty relief pitchers. The, you know, um, the name that's coming to mind right now is Randy Choate for some reason. I don't know why, but um, those lefty pitchers who are making their money off of getting lefty hitters out and that's it. Yeah. And so it's an interesting juxtaposition because it does benefit hitters to a certain degree. But it also, you know, it'll kill off a certain number of 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 roles within organizations. It's just because it speeds up, uh, um, because it speeds up, um, because it speeds up the uh, game, and that's all they want at this point. I think they just want the like, I don't know. It's just absurd. I don't think I they're mean, governing it well in terms of making changes to the um like pitching change rules and stuff i think the problem with that is that that players you know they're being forced into going to commercial and then they you know they come running in from the bullpen and they throw eight to ten warm-up pitches and that's the whole song and dance of a pitching change taking a long time where maybe they cut down on the number of pitches they throw once they're in the, you know, once they come in, they throw three pitches, you know, yeah. they, they have to be ready in 30 seconds kind of thing where they can show a split screen ad spot where yeah. you don't even leave, which, you know, I think the NFL did more of split screen ad spots that were shorter and it meant more commercials, but it also meant shorter breaks, which I think is, yeah. I have no problem with shorter breaks. I'd rather be seeing what's going on in the stadium yeah. than having, you know, Geico ads up in my yeah. face. It's starting to become a lot more common, all that. Like, I just think, it, you know, screen. when you're at the stadium, you see the pitching change happen and it's not like you're thinking, wow, like this is, this is killing me. No, you're no, thinking, it, wow, like you're, because you're, you're in it, you know, you're, you're seeing it. I mean, it's a part of the game. It, it's just right. right. There's going to be relief pitchers. Exactly. They just want to like, I don't know. I just think it's a bad move. Um, the other thing is the change of the, um, the expanded rosters in September to 28 players. I think that's a bunch of garbage. I don't understand it. Terrible. I just don't understand it. What's the point of it? Here's here's what what I see. They, what they're arguing is that having, 40 man rosters means that teams call up too many pitchers and therefore go through with too many pitching changes when they it's, have 40 guys. He wants the game. Oh my God. It's just so dumb. He wants the game faster. That's all it is. This is yeah. baseball. It's not a timed sport. That's the thing right. about the sport. It's not supposed to be timed. And he, it's just, 
it doesn't make any sense. It. What I have a problem with from a from a the perspective of someone who's you know almost always taking the side of of players in the recent strife that exists between the union and the um in the league is that you know you're taking away spots for what is it 13 guys if you're going from 40 to 28 you know who 12 guys excuse me who will be um having a chance to make a month worth of big league salary um get up to a month's worth of service time and that you know the 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 guys who make major league salary you're talking the difference between making you know five figures and mid six figures for a month which is you know that can be that can be huge especially given that that minor league players aren't paid very well whatsoever and so it it blows my mind that the union has exceeded to this idea that pace of play is such an issue and not you know the thing is the union doesn't represent the minor league players so they don't you know in terms of the eyes of the union you don't matter until you've had that first day of service time and so oh i don't just i just don't get how they're it doesn't not, make any sense what it should be i, I i've been thinking about this i've seen you know, different iterations of how to solve this issue but what you should be able to do is you should be able to you know they should either say that every player on the 40-man roster after September 1st gets a full month of service time and gets a full major league salary for a month. Yeah. Or you should be able to say, you know, I've promoted players A, B, C, D, E, so that, you know, you have you can have up to 40 players be considered active roster players. But then, you know, it's a seven o'clock game and at five o'clock you have to say you know these are the 30 players that i will use tonight you know you have a an active game roster like how in the nfl you have what like a 53 man roster but only 42 can be active for the game or something like that like i think that's fair you can carry it's almost like having a uh, a sub roster within the 40 for september but you you can designate who's who's active, you know, having a 30 man roster for the game, but a 40 man roster for travel and for pay and stuff like that. <laughs> and, you know, it would end up being most teams would just make the previous four starting pitchers be considered inactive. And then they'd have a bunch more relievers and maybe a couple more bench players. But that's what it would have been anyway with with the um, 40 man roster with no um boundaries to it. So I just think that it's one of those things where it's it's a it's a solution in search of a problem. I don't I yeah. don't think that the 40 man rosters were a pace of play issue. I think they ended up being something that was more about getting players familiar with the big league level as well as um starting service clocks, getting more guys into big league uniforms resting players if you're headed to the playoffs like i don't think i don't think the red sox started their a lineup for the last three weeks of september because they didn't have to and it was better for them to let guys just you know get the at-bats you know it ended up being like spring training again for them because they sort of had the opportunity to just get the at-bats they needed and then 
know, get two at bats and then pinch hit and you're done. Take a shower, get in your street clothes, go home, get a night, good night's sleep and do it again the next day. And so, I mean, I think that had might have had a role in their in their playoff run, other than the fact that they were, you know, everything broke their way and that they were also just in good enough shape because they won so many games and were so far ahead in that division that they didn't need to play hard to win every night. They just needed to play to stay healthy and just be far enough ahead that it didn't matter anymore. Yeah. And that they did. So, yeah, I, I mean, I just think that it was especially coupled with the stuff that they're doing in the Atlantic league with the mound being a little farther back and the electronic umpires and no mound visits except to change pitchers and, uh, you know, no shifts, you know, when the pitch is thrown two two players have to be on either side. Yeah. I'm just, it just seems like it's being tinkered with in ways that, that aren't going to make that much of a difference. And, and I agree. Change, changing the game is, is more of a risk than yeah. a lot of the problems that people have, you know, are, are the the financial disconnect between fans, owners, and players where fans think it's Scott Boris's fault or think, oh, wow, you know, baseball players should just be happy they're making $2 million to be playing, a, you know, oh, they're playing a kid's game. You know, the, the usual dumb argument about stuff like that. All sports where, are a kid's game. Literally. Oh, right. Yeah. Just on a ridiculously game. high level. Exactly. It, it's, that's such a non-argument. It's such a yeah. like. It's a very close-minded thought yes. process, but where where people are looking at the players and saying, "Wow, you're selfish because you want twenty-five million dollars a year rather than uh, you know uh, for on a ten-year contract rather than ten million dollars a year on a six-year deal or or they, stuff like uh, that," where it, it doesn't give the player the sort of you know, the, the the revenues of baseball have been going up and up and up and everybody knows that, but the median yeah. salary I don't think has been going in the same direction and definitely has not been growing at the same, at the same rate. And, you know, it's interesting that we're how many years out now from those monster contracts, Alex Rodriguez signed with Texas and then with the Yankees and you still see contract leaderboards how many years later where he's still top five. And it's sort of like, you know, there've been players who have warranted similar amounts of, of, of money as the inflation rate, you know, if a rod signed that contract today, it would have been like close to $400 million. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's more guys as the money becomes worth what it is, who should be getting similar to what a rod was getting in the early two thousands. And it's just sort of astounding that we're at this point where people are blaming the players for being greedy and not the owners. They know their worth. Like, I mean, absolutely. You and know that's where they're the, at a point, and it's just like a disrespect at like a point. Yeah, almost. I agree with that. And it's also like with the, with the, the the owners sort of talk out of both sides of their mouth because they talk about how oh it's us evaluating the player, and that's what we you know we we know what they're worth, and they know what they're worth, and that's where it sort of that's where they butt heads. But at the same time, they're also doing things like when they have all the control with with players who are pre-arbitration eligible and guys in the minors like Vlad Jr. and, and Eloy Jimenez, who are both guys who are 
definitely going to, you know, they're going to be in AAA for three weeks because they need to work on their defensive positioning or something. And then suddenly after the Super 2 cutoff, they're going to be starting players and probably finish top five in the rookie of the year voting. It's so stupid. It's just, I don't know. You know something that, that that's crazy about the player compensation? And I know it's completely off topic because we're talking about the rule changes, but maybe we'll see this in the new CBA negotiation is, um, do you know um, that Jonathan Loisica got a bigger raise from the Yankees um, from his, you know, what, five appearances like three starts and two bullpen appearances mm-hmm. in the big leagues this year, then then Blake Snell got from the Rays for winning the AL Cy Young Award. Yeah. He got I like saw that actually. I think he got like an extra, you know, couple hundred bucks from the Yankees for it. Yeah, and Blake, I mean, Blake Snell was renewed. He didn't agree with the Rays. And the Rays apparently had to have a, a rule where if you don't agree to the number that they give you they will renew you at that number minus $5,000. And that is ridiculous. They're like, Oh, well, well, you know, you won the Cy Young. They didn't, they didn't penalize Blake Snell for it. But the, I know, I think it was last year with, um, Jack, Jack Flaherty. That's the guy with the Cardinals. That's his first name, right? Um, yeah, he had a great year last year. Yeah, he was renewed by the Cardinals and they their team policy is a $10,000 penalty and they didn't waive it for him. And I'm pretty sure he was a top five rookie of the year finisher for them. He so was. it's sort of just, you know, <laughs> I, I don't really care how many pitching changes there are in a game. I know that I turn on a baseball game knowing I'm going to, you know, settle into my couch and watch it from first pitch to, you know, the yeah. 27th out. Those moves are made for the, um, for the, um, I guess like a, I guess like a casual fan. Yeah. Like I think honestly, because if you ask any like actual fan, they don't like have any of these issues. They're fine with it as, I don't know. I just think. I can see it you know, it, the, they talk about the amount of strikeouts, the amount of foul balls. That's just and, the game know, though. That's how, yeah. I mean, what can you do? I can see, I can see how non-contact is not as appealing in terms of a strategy. You know, there, the Yankees have all these relievers who can have, you know, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I could, you know, I would bet you that of the Yankees bullpen, you know, if they have eight guys, I bet you six or seven of them from last year were top 10 or top 15 in the league and strikeouts per nine innings. You know, yeah, they're they bringing in guys bad. because strikeouts almost never, you know, unless it gets away from the catcher, strikeouts ne- are guaranteed outs. You know, it's not like a yeah. ground ball to the shortstop, which he can kick and it's, just, it's a runner. <laughs> strikeouts are guaranteed outs. And so that's why it's so valuable. But they're sort of, <sighs> I, 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 you know, with with shifts and all these things and, and moving the mound, it's sort of like I don't we're, get we're, the at, mound. We're, we're in an age where the pitchers are just so, so good. And so when players, you know, the common critique about, you know, people like to blame, you know, launch angle, not really knowing what it is, essentially, and just blaming it as a concept um, when you have 
you know, you, you watch Adam Ottavino pitch once and you're thinking, well, that's why players strike out as much as they do, because that's <laughs> yeah. absolutely ridiculous. He's got a slider that breaks, you know, nine inches across the plate and a two seamer yeah. that starts over the middle of the plate and ends up on your, you know, at the laces of your cleats. So it's mm-hmm. sort of. It's I mean, I, I don't know if you I don't know if they have it for Ottavino, but I've seen, you know, batter views of pitchers throwing bullpens and it's like. It's not oh easy to God. hit. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's no. not easy to hit. I mean, uh, there's been plenty of of science put into the 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 um the process of hitting a baseball from first you know watching the windup, getting your foot down, getting your hands through all this stuff, recognizing the pitch, and knowing how much time you have to start and stop your swing. It's just it's it's crazy. And so that's why, you know, people critiquing, oh, just hit the ball the other way. That's how you beat shifts. It's sort of like only the really, really upper echelon players have the ability to control their bat with that amount of um, finesse. You know, it's not that easy to to pull your hands inside the baseball and and flick it the other way just because you can. You know, there are guys who, who from high school through college through the minors all the way up until the big leagues are the type of players who you know rip the ball to right field every single time as a lefty because they they didn't have to do anything else they were always better Mm -hmm. and so when you get to that top level the idea i guess becomes you know you demand you know adjustment baseball is a game of adjustments there's no question about it but it's sort of uh, you know i don't know it's it's a lazy thing to say you know go against the shift and so i don't know i hope they don't i hope it's strictly ex- experimental with the i don't like stuff the shift i'll be honest i'd love to see it go i hate the shift i absolutely just like see here's here's my thing about the shift it just i think it's upset because of all of our guys obviously like they're always like like um kind of like bird yeah i think the shift it just gets me aggravated but it's a part of the game as it is it's just, I, I don't mind the strategy aspect of it. it. It can be frustrating from the looks of it, but I remember, I think it was sports info solutions tweeted that um, without the shift, the Yankees were at something like minus 20 defensive runs saved. And when they were shifting, it was like plus 40. So like, yeah, that doesn't, they yeah, were that really, really good with it. it helps. And that's one of the, that's one of the ways they mitigate the, the, the sort of low, the the lack of range from Andujar, the sort of growing learning range of Gleyber Torres, who's figuring out second base on the fly. Um, most first basemen aren't really big range guys, so you 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 have those handicaps on these players, and so any advantage you can give them is a good thing. But I I just like I think you have nine guys on the field, and they're they're just you put them in the best positions to make plays. And I think it, it, you know, when the, the Dodgers got, you know, in trouble because they were trying to use the laser machine at city field during that playoff series to oh, spray paint. Yeah. They tried to use a machine that would put um, their scouting department would use, a, it would put laser dots on the field for certain tendencies or whatever. And they, asked the Mets if they could spray paint the dots on the field at city field. So that for positioning and the Mets said no, and I don't know what the league said about it, but why do they even ask that? Obviously players are carrying cards with 
with positioning and things like that, which I think, you know, as long as it doesn't go too, I don't even know. I mean, I'm more of the, of the mindset that, you know, put the catcher in left field, have the pitcher throw it to the backstop for all I care. Like, you know, try to get people out at whatever it takes, but I, I don't think know. at a I'm, certain I'm, extent, it's like, I don't know. I just think at a certain extent, it's, um, yeah, it, goes, it goes a little too, too far much. sometimes. I mean, sometimes they have everyone in the outfield. I mean, that's not like, that's just dumb. I'm sorry. You have like five outfielders. No. Yeah. There are certain, the there are certain hitters who, who kind of like Gallo. It's I interesting. Gallo, had, DJ LeMahieu had it happen to him last week. I, um, um, I Harper, think, the, yeah, the Rays yes. did it to Harper. Um, and it was interesting because with LeMahieu, because he hits the ball, when he hits it in the air, he kind of goes to right center a lot. He never hits the ball on the ground to the right side of the infield. So they played, you know, they put, I think they put the second baseman in right field and shifted everybody over and then had the third baseman and the shortstop playing on the left side and he grounded out to third base. You know, he, yeah. they, they realized he only hits fly balls. He hits fly. He sprays fly balls everywhere. But when he hits it on the ground, it's only going to be the left side. And then it worked. Mm-hmm. He didn't, he didn't, you know, spray it through the right side where there was nobody there. He hit it right to Brandon Drury. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. I think we won't see any significant issues with the rules as implemented this year. I think no, the one I don't problem, think so. maybe the mound visit thing will come up every once in a while, but that was one I of those things that so. ended up being super overhyped as a big yeah. problem. And then sort of was much ado about nothing. Um, I think we'll see more debate and more, um, you know, rhetoric between the league and the players association as 2020 comes, um, as well as the, um, the sort of escalating tensions as the, the next collective bargaining agreement negotiations um, come together. And and we'll see how those end up sort yeah. of starting and finishing just because they, they, there doesn't seem to be much um, good faith communicating and negotiating. I know there was a picture posted today. I think it was also Jason Stark who tweeted it. Um, Tony Clark met with the Detroit Tigers um, and they wanted to meet with him on the backfields because they thought that the clubhouse might be bugged by by the team. So, you know, stuff like that doesn't exactly lend you the most confidence as um, as things move forward. I'll be honest. I don't. I think there's I think there's a pretty good chance of of a strike or significant alterations to the um, the landscape. It's concerning as a fan. It really is. Yeah. I mean, it's just. With social media, and I just think that players are being very straightforward about it, which I think is more healthy than if they were going to dance around the fact that that they're unhappy. And I think that that's going to play into the success of their messaging is to say things, you know, pointing out, you know, Cy Young Award winner Blake Snell getting a minuscule raise. Um, Vlad Jr., who's a consensus top prospect, who's being used for profit by... Major League Baseball and promotional materials, selling shirts, selling all this different stuff. You know, the idea of Vlad Jr., the Toronto Blue Jays third baseman, is is being used to market to sell tickets and all this other stuff. And he 
isn't going to start the year with them. Granted, he did get hurt, so he's sort of. So now they you know, excuse, they would have done it. They have they have the it's a convenient excuse, but at the same time, anyways. Right, exactly. Just oh, yeah. no, take out, take out the oblique defense. injury and and substitute. He needs to work on his footwork at third base. Yeah, because and that would have yeah. conveniently taken you know three weeks until Super Two, and then voila. Yeah. So that's all it takes a couple uh, weeks to get good at something. Right. And exactly. Yeah, Just like you know the, what they did with the Yankees did it with Gleyber Torres. Um, yeah. They managed, you know, the, I think one of the reasons Miguel Andujar didn't get a September call up in 2017 yeah, they, was because they wanted the to keep him oh, for no, I'm that. Sorry, 2017, I misheard you. Yeah, sorry. I mean, I'm, he that he wasn't supposed to come up until mid season last year, and he ended up having to be up, you know, late April. You know, before that, even he was called up when Billy McKinney got hurt and never went back down. Um, when Billy McKinney ran into that wall in Toronto. Yeah. That uh, was a bad stretch. Everyone got injured all of our outfielders. Yeah, Hicks got hurt. McKinney got hurt. Then Drury started having the migraine issues and all that yeah. stuff. And I mean, it, it it allowed. It was it was it was interesting because there was all this talk about how Drury wouldn't be in the way when Andujar was ready, and how Neil Walker wouldn't be in the way when Torres was ready. And it was one of those things where writers and 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 people were sort of like, don't, don't worry about what needs to move around. You know, Neil Walker is only getting paid $4 million. Brandon Jury is making pre-arb money and has minor league options and all this stuff. And I mean, it, it was, it was astounding to me how that really flipped quickly because Drury, you know, couldn't had that problem with his neck and the migraines and the blurred vision and all that stuff. And next thing you know, he's packaged with McKinney for, for J Hep, even though, I mean, that was, that was kind of an overpay. Yeah, it was, but it was a need, yeah, and they knew it. So you do what you got and then, at that point. You know, Walker ended up morphing into being a really valuable utility guy playing third base, second base, first base, and even right field. So it was funny how that those roles, you know, Walker was supposed to be the placeholder at second base until Torres was ready. Yeah. And Torres came up and Walker shifted almost seamlessly, almost, you know. Played a lot of first. Of your, yeah, I played a lot of first. And, he was and, good there too. Yeah, he was. Um, he was, was surprised. I think he was better than what the Yankees had bargained for. I think they didn't. Yeah. They kind of realized that that was what they needed to do when they 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 sort of looked. And, and it was one of those situations where the price was was irresistible. And that was how I remember it first being explained was, Oh wow! Like a, a switch hitting infield veteran infielder who can play second base, third base, and first base for only four million dollars on a one year deal only. Like, yeah, a good deal. Yeah, Very good deal. I mean, it worked out well. But I mean, to wrap this up, I think I think we're 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 not headed in the best direction in terms of labor relations. I think. No, we're not at the point yet where we're going to see very drastic changes. It's just the trade deadline, the all-star home run derby things, uh, some shorter commercial breaks between innings and one fewer mound visit. And the, the real sort of radical stuff with the rosters and the pitchers and the position players pitching and changes to the injured list and all that stuff won't come till 2020. And I almost can guarantee you that those are not going to be the only real changes. I bet you we're going to be sitting here in November and talking about what's next for uh, rule changes and, and negotiations, but hopefully they can, they can put something together that'll help avoid a strike and, and, and 
sort of put everybody in a good mood as they head into the 2021 collective bargaining agreement negotiations. I would hope, but so far, I don't know. It's not a good look so far. I don't know at all. All right. Now we're going to head into our favorite portion of uh, tonight's episode. We're going to get into some direct messages and voice messages from you guys that you guys sent in to our phone number as well as our Twitter account. That phone number, again, if you want to contribute as we go forward, is 929-251-3932. And... We're going to answer as many in every episode because we love hearing from you guys. And it really um, we love to have the dynamic where you talk to us and we, we're happy to give our opinions on uh, on your questions. So the first one comes into us. We're going to get Noah's message and he asks, um, what do the Yankees what what happens if um, Troy Tulowitzki is healthy and hitting well when Didi Gregorius returns. What does that mean for the Yankees? Uh, well, in my opinion, first. go for it, Max. Yeah, that, that means the Yankees are doing that. The Yankees just have more players that are productive. Yeah, that's what it means. You, you don't also, you don't have to rush. If Troy to us, he's healthy and he's playing well at shortstop. You don't have to rush Didi back into the lineup every day as, as, at shortstop. You can DH him. You can, Play much more than DH Troy Tulitsky. You can do a lot of things. That's the great thing about the Yankees roster right now and the way it's made up. If everything goes to plan, every and everyone's being and a lot of them are being productive, then they can start giving people days off. They can just start churning out random lineups, and that and that stuff will work. Yeah, yeah, I think it'll be a good that. problem to have. We'll head to our question from All Rise Flash who asks, who do we think will hit the first Yankees homer in 2019? Uh, before you guys answer, just note that the Yankees start with a three-game series against the Baltimore Orioles in Yankee Aaron Stadium. Judge. Aaron yep. Judge. Aaron Judge. Yes, yep. it'll be Judge then if it's against the Orioles, 100%. I think it's Judge. I think it's probably in his first plate appearance. I will say the same. <laughs> yeah, you can't, really, you can't really argue anybody else, especially knowing the way that... Um, if it's not Judge, it's too low. There it is. If it's not right. Judge, I like that. I like that. Um, our good friend El Papi Chulo, uh, Luigi, El Mio, with the a lovely question. Um, Tommy, first, Papi. you know, telling us, uh, asking us, rather, um, do we think Glaber Torres should be the leadoff hitter? Not in 2019. Yet. All right. So yes, I agree with John. Not yet, but I think they should spend some time, like. If there's any given situation that dictates that there's a hole in the leadoff spot or uncertainty or just even some wiggle, like wiggle room, I think they should be grooming him to have the tools of a leadoff hitter as soon as possible. Because I think very similar to what they did with Derek Jeter, they can move him from a bottom of the order spot into that perennial leadoff guy, probably with ease if they cut down some of his strikeout numbers and like up his plate discipline, things like that. So I think no, not the season. But maybe next season or maybe the one after that, I think he should take it and then run with it for the rest of his career, quite frankly. Yeah. No. Yeah. You sum that up fine. 100%. I yeah. Agree. I, th- I think that's definitely possible. I just like it's sort of he's such a young hitter that it won't work for him to be there now. But he strikes me as the kind of person with a good enough eye that he'll eventually be able to recognize pitches, foul pitches off and be the yeah. kind of 
you know, you look at what Brett Gardner does and suddenly you realize he's having an eight pitch at bat. And I think Gardner and not Gardner, excuse me. I think Torres can be that eventually. But who is the leadoff hitter at this point? Aaron Hicks? Hicks. No. Aaron Hicks. No, Hicks. I would love to have DJ on the off days that he plays. Mm-hmm. Who would you have lead off then? That, that's why, that's why Max is I'd in have LeMahieu. I'd have LeMahieu, Judge, Hicks, Stanton, Sanchez. That's my, that's my top. That's your top five. I don't Hicks, I, I like DJ. I, I mean, I like Hicks there, but I, I mean, if DJ is playing and I see him in the leadoff spot, given his ability to hit for contact and given what he's done in the past, I would never, never, never complain about that. Because I the think he, he embodies a lot of that Derek. That might mean that's true, that but I think he embodies a lot of the, the Derek Jeter leadoff-esque qualities. I don't know. I I also am just, I'm, I'm a big fan of DJ. I kind of like was last season. I, you know, like, I don't know. But I think Aaron Hicks should be it this year. He will like, be, I think, I think, I think that's what I said. Yeah, like, yeah, I think, yeah, I think Boone said that. Um, but, question from Andrew, he says, how many guys on the 2019 team do you think will hit 30 plus homers? Um, Ooh, that's a good one. Four. Um, four Stanton, Sanchez, Voight, and um, Judge. Voight. Yeah, I think he's going to get I'll the go, I'll go yeah, with four, but instead of Voight, I'm going to go with Andujar. I also want to say five because I don't know, but it's tough because I love like Hicks, but I don't know. I mean, I think he could though. I'm going to say, say but JP go first. No, no, I don't have my names yet. All right. um, I'm going to say five Judge Stanton, Voight, Torres, and Duar. And I don't think Gary hits 30. I think Gary will hit anywhere from 25 to 28. I don't think he's going to be back to that 37 home run form just yet. But he will not be in that, you know, that that dismal slump, I guess, if you want to call it, from last year. I think he'll, he's going to work his way back, but I think he's going to establish him, himself as like a, this year at least, as like a 25, 28 home run kind of guy. I hope he hits more. Don't get me wrong, but I think he's going to take a year to segue there. I'm going to say at least, there will be at least three. I've got locks on Stanton. Judge and Sanchez. I think if Hicks is healthy enough to play an entire year, you know, 150 plus games with probably with some DHing mixed in, I think he could be a 30 home run hitter. Um, I, I think agree. he was, I think he just he missed 27, but technically 25 because they were, um, um, because the, um, two that were like inside. The hey, park, so the those two inside the park home runs that count as home runs. So it's yes, cool they anyway. count, but it's such an outlier. That's I mean, but mm, you know what I mean. Mm, well, here's the thing: Aaron twenty-five Hicks, actual like home runs that you know. I'm using well, baseball well. reference to project out, you know, what Aaron Hicks would have done if he played 162 games. He would have hit 32 homers if he played 162 games last year. I so, think he could. I'm not saying that he can't. I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm high on Aaron Hicks and I think he could do it. Uh, yeah, everyone knows I am. I think, mm, I think those are my four. I'm, I'm not a hundred. I'm like 80% on the Luke Voigt bandwagon, but I'm yeah, not no, at I the point where I think he could, he could be, I, I want to see Luke Voigt hit 25 homers. If he can do that, that's, you know, that's incredible. But I think that's more production at first base than we've gotten since. Oh, right. God. Yeah. If he can hit 260. Good, good as Yeah. 
And the thing about, just to wrap this up, I think the thing about Aaron Hicks that I'm going to be looking at is I don't necessarily think he's going to hit that 30 threshold, especially if he's in the leadoff spot, because I think at that point, the Yankees will be coaching him, at least I hope, to take a bit of a more balanced approach. And if that results in him not hitting 250, but hitting 280 and hitting 20 home runs instead of 27, I wouldn't, I would not be at all upset with that. So I think, I think the Yankees might try to have that sort of approach with him. And I, and I certainly hope that they do. We'll head to our final DM now. And we're actually combining two together. Our first, you know, Luigi sent us another great one as well as a contribution from Robert Castellini at atomic underscore YKZ. Uh, thank you for sending this in. I'll combine those. So I'm paraphrasing here, but, uh, the question essentially is, do you think the Yankees should go out and be, um, on the market for another veteran starting pitcher, given the, the injuries to Luis Severino and CC Sabathia, as well as, um, mentioned by Luigi, at least the recent um, struggles that uh, Jonathan Loisica has been having so far in spring training. They should, but they won't be. I just don't think they will. I think they'll like, I don't know. I think they like everyone in house. Yeah. They're yeah. saying the same what they have right now. Hoke kind of echoed those same sentiments and that he thinks that they will stay in house, but it, you know, it's not necessarily out of the realm of possibility that they look to the free agent or even trade market. Um, but I think for all intents and purposes, they will kind of stick with what they've got for right now. Yeah, I think they're going to hang out with what's in-house, mostly because the prognoses of both Severino and Sabathia are not going to, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, are not going to last too far into this season. You're looking at, you know, at you know worst case scenario, Severino misses all of April. Worst case scenario for Sabathia is he misses like three weeks of the regular season. And so you're not looking at a Tommy John surgery or, you know, uh, one of those lingering oblique strains that somehow will keep a guy out from April to July. So I think that's why they're staying away from someone like Gio Gonzalez, who, who has a pretty high chance of getting a rotation spot somewhere where he's going to be, you know, a five starter for months on months and get, you know, 25 starts, you know, possibly on a bad team, who knows, but he wants to be that kind of pitcher. And also my, what I'll, you know, finish up by saying is the Yankees would rather be paying someone like Domingo Herman, Luis Sessa, or Jonathan Loisaga, you know, pre-arbitration six figures, which is, you know, nothing in the world of baseball salary to be, you know, a four, 4.5 ERA pitcher for two weeks, then they would rather have than pay, you know, I bet you Gio Gonzalez would command three, $4 million and they'd rather there's better value to a cheaper player. And I just don't think that Gio Gonzalez will outperform, you know, the theoretical Gio Gonzalez stint in the Yankees rotation would not perform better than what those minor league guys could do. And so and especially I just at the value that they're providing given the, like given the contract situations, I don't yeah, think I just still provide more value at, at $6 million a year. than Domingo Hermano, Jonathan Loisigo will do at $600,000 a year. Right. I mean, the three of the, the you know, Sessa, Herman, Loisigo combined would, are still making less than what Gio Gonzalez would command from any team. And so that's why I don't think they'll go there. They just think that that's a better move in terms of value and in terms of money. And I, I agree with them. 
thanks for all those DMs. Please uh, keep them coming as we'll answer them next week as well. We've got one voicemail for you this week, and it comes from our good buddy, uh, Andrew in Hell's Kitchen. Hey, guys. Andrew from Hell's Kitchen. So, uh, obviously, we have uh, seven bullpen spots locked up, where uh, six and seven are uh, Holder Canely. Uh, I think Sessa is going to make the last bullpen spot because, you know, he's out of options. They want to try him as a uh, max effort reliever, recoup some trade value or whatever, blah, blah, blah. So uh, who are your, like, five guys that you could see uh, being a part of the Scranton Shuttle? I got uh, I got Ben Heller. I think when he's healthy, he's the best guy. Uh, then Stephen Tarpley. Then uh, a guy who's not on the 40-man that I've been following at AAA for a bit, uh, Ray Nell uh, Espinal. Then uh, Joe Harvey, who is on the 40-man. And then uh, just throw in Philip Beal or whatever. What are your thoughts? I think it, it, they're going to be hard-pressed to be making 40-man roster spots during this season. I think... It's pretty clear. I think the way that Canely's been throwing, the way that Sessa has been throwing, that those two will be on the team with Sessa's role sort of to be determined whether he ends up being the five starter, whether he ends up being the long man. Um, you know, they're they're going to be using. Uh, I think we'll see Chance Adams sort of as a long reliever. Uh, Tarpley will be there more often than not. I think he showed a lot of uh, a lot of you know strong ability recently. Um, Harvey, Harvey, you know, Harvey, I feel like was sort of like, oh man, you know, at the rule five deadline, they realized they had spots and just were like, cool, we'll add an up and down arm. Um, because he wasn't, he didn't really show incredible ability, but you know, he's there, he's got options, he can go up and down. Um, I think, I think deal is an interesting name because he's pitched so well so far. But he he hasn't pitched above um, he hasn't pitched above double A. He's only had 14 appearances at double A. And so I don't think he has the stuff to do the jump that Jonathan Loisaga did last year and go straight to the major leagues. And also just because Tarpley is ahead of him on the lefty chart and is on the 40 man. And so I think that you're more likely to see Tarpley if they need a lefty than you are to see deal because deal isn't on the 40 man roster and doesn't have to be, I think until next off season, I'm not sure if he's required to be protected at this point. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, going off that while you look up, whatever you're looking up, uh, I think the obvious answers right now are Tarpley and Canley Canley, you know, having kicked his unhealthy fucking caffeine addiction from last year yeah, that's crazy also coming back to somewhat form in two, from 2017 and Tarpley having emerged last year and shown a little bit of promise this year in spring training being a lefty I think that gives him a bit of a leg up because that's you know kind of a valuable asset outside of uh, Britain and Chapman so I think that's my two guys that I would guess and then kind of a intriguing sleeper candidate would be Ben Heller having already played with the Yankees and kind of coming back from Tommy John and all that stuff but I think besides that, it'll just be the two of them. Yeah, I think it's the guys already on the 40 man. Um, deal is not rule five eligible until next off season, And so that's why he's no, not on the 40, 40 man conversation is, is the reason why I also think Harvey is also you know, lost just because he's awesome. In yeah, I agree. In spring training as well. So I think that obviously I think he's a start triple A. I think everyone does. But I think like for, like as soon as trouble, trouble uh, starts and 
uh, comes up, he's the next guy up after Tarpley. Yeah, I think it ends up being Tarpley first, then you end up in your category where you have Chance Adams um, and um, who else? And Harvey. Sort of those are the guys that, that can go up and down. And then I know that they had Domingo Acevedo up for one day to possibly throw long relief. And then they sent him down. Um, they can do the same thing with him. They can do it so with Abreu. The whole, so, the whole bring it up for one day. They did it, they got twice the, what's the name? Uh, bowling or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That was sad. That's another, you know, what? Yeah. They did that like, one, that was one day on the remember, right? In 2000 and yeah, well, he actually played, he actually got yeah, in the game. I know, I know, and he, he went two for well three, too. yeah, against um, the White Sox. The thing is, Acevedo now, with one day of service time, is eligible for the um full lifetime MLB health insurance package, um, which I'm sure he'll enjoy. Very cool. JP, that um, was, uh, yeah. Really interesting that you just gave us there. JP, very cool. Um, very cool. I, I on the other hand, will not be eligible for MLB health insurance pack anytime soon. No, unfortunately. Barring, not. <laughs> you know, barring some sort of fantastic development that I make in uh, arm strength and things like that. But until then, we are going to leave you guys. Uh, we're going to thank you for tuning in. As always, we're going to encourage you to rate, subscribe, comment, tell your friends, tell your friends' friends, tell your parents, tell their friends. Um, if you get the chance, you know, tweet at Brian Hoke, say thank you for uh, coming on the Core 4 podcast. You're awesome. Uh, if you also get the chance, tweet at us, tell us the same. Because, uh, you know, it's always nice to hear. But leave voicemails. Yeah, leave voicemails. Um, and send us your questions. Send us your questions via DM. Voicemail number, as always, is... Is... 929-251-3932. Again, 929-251-3932. You know, send us anything as outrageous as you want it to be, within reason. Not, you know, it doesn't even have to be within reason, but as always, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, we will see you this time next week. Mm-hmm.